You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in today's episode, Mathieu, Tom, and I will jump more than 8,000 years into the future to discuss one of 2021's hottest and most acclaimed blockbusters, the Nivelle News Dune. We'll explore the intrigues of this galaxy that could be far, far away, break down the futuristic vision, the characters and the casting, the plot, and of course, the direction and the visuals. Because if there's one thing you cannot take away from this film, it's the fact that it's absolutely stunning. And don't worry, there won't be any spoilers until the very end. There'll even be a clear spoiler warning before that point. So if you're one of the few people yet to see it, don't worry, we've got you back. You can lean back and enjoy as we get to the bottom of how ridiculous or eerily accurate it could be that bagpipes are genuinely the true musical instrument of war in the future. We will also answer the pressing question, is this? what a blockbuster should be, and is there a genuine future for blockbusters with artistic visions? And, displaying far less respect, we'll, we'll throw in a wholly new section that I like to call the Pulp Factor, where we'll score just how pulpy or not we think Real News Dune actually is. Oh, and yes, obligatory comparisons to Lynch's version are included. But before we get to any of that, let me bring my co-host into the conversation, and perhaps it would be good to start with a bit of a temperature check, so that both you and I know where they're coming from. So, um, Tom... Let's start with you. What did you think of Real News Dune? Um, do you have a scathing one-line review? I absolutely loved Dune. It is so far my favourite film of the year that I've seen out of 49 films. It ticks all of my boxes. It's just this beautiful, grand sci-fi with an epic scale, and it delivered. So yeah, I'm a very happy bunny with Dune. Here we have at least one strong defender of uh, Dune here. Um, but what about uh, you, Matthew? I know that Blade Runner 2049 was actually your favorite film of 2019. Did Dune live up to your hopes? Well, in some ways, Dune was impressive, but I wasn't entirely convinced by a film that I think really plays like a part one. And as such, it feels difficult to even judge it. Um, without part two, it's to me it did not quite feel like a like a whole is what I would say. So impressive in some ways, but not did did not quite live up to to expectations. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, I suppose that uh, that kind of disappointment is a bit built in in a film that's literally called part one. So uh, feeling it, it's not even like a standalone film in a franchise with obligatory uh, sequel tie-ins. It's just genuinely part one of a story, which uh, is a very interesting choice, let's say. Um, on my part, I, I am more inclined to agree with uh, Tom. I think it's absolutely Stunning, uh, like I mentioned in my intro, I, I think that it's just beautifully done. 
it's an intricate world that's so well built. It's delicious to look at. I thought many of the performances were great. I think the atmosphere is strong, but I think it does run an issue of taking some of its elements a bit too seriously and including some, shall we say, pulpy elements or some uh, dialogue, etc. that's just delivered a bit oddly and didn't work as well for me. But overall, a great film, and in terms of pulpiness, I'll get more into that in the later segment. But, but uh, to, to expand on uh, your thoughts here a little bit, and uh, perhaps we can start with a bit of... Uh, positivity. What stood out to you the most? Did did anything just blow you away in this film? A lot of the special effects worked really well for me. I watched the film on an IMAX screen and it was just so immersive. The whole uh, sound design and the, the set design and the visuals, they were just breathtaking. It genuinely transports you to another world and we don't often get that on this sense of scale with a, a blockbuster by such a, a talented director with an incredible vision. I mean, most of his previous films are, are favourites of mine and I just thought it was, it was incredible. It makes a complex story seem relatively straightforward and accessible. I must add a disclaimer here that I haven't actually read any of the novels. I did try to read Dune when I was a teenager, but I didn't stick with it. But watching this film has made me want to return to the novel because I'm very excited to spend a lot more time in this world if possible. Yeah, if we're adding that disclaimer, I think I have to also say that I have not read the the novel. What about you, Mathieu? Well, I have read the the original novel. I haven't read the sequels, but it's only the original novel that is really relevant here. And I think that kind of played a role maybe in my reaction in terms of the visuals and the set design, the, the aesthetics in general. I think I've come to expect uh, what we got essentially from Denis Villeneuve, even though this is on a much bigger scale than what he did in Arrival and in um, Blade Runner 2049. I think maybe I had a muted reaction, even though it's, I mean, it's undeniable that this is a, a grand epic spectacle with, yeah, yeah, it, it, it definitely has that spectacle aspect to it. And I think it, it succeeds in that way. But I, I don't know why I just wasn't quite blown over. And I think part of it is that familiarity with Villeneuve and also with the books, because I think there are, there's a lot of joy in discovery with a world like Dune, right, which has all of these various elements that you get to see. And I think maybe it's not the same when it's like, Oh yeah, I know this. It's from the books. <laughs> so like, um, there, there, there were some design elements that I loved, like the the shields, the way the way he does the shields, the ornithopters. Th- th- there's a lot to like, but it was more recognition than being blown away. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Especially if you're just uh, seeing the plot points being checked off uh, point by point, I can see why it would be uh, as exciting for you. I, I can also, I suppose, add in that yes, this is the standard we've come to expect from Villeneuve. And that's not a criticism. Obviously, Villeneuve can do anything about the fact that he's adapting an existing work. I'm just kind of trying to understand why <laughs> why I didn't love this as much as I, as I would have liked to. I suppose one thing that could go for any of Villeneuve's uh, films, and we, I'm actually going to ask more about uh, him as a sci-fi director, blockbuster director later, but he is a bit of a cold and calculated uh, director, which, which can work really, really well, but... He's really just uh, 
telling the story here. He's telling the story with great visuals and uh, you know great atmosphere setting, etc. But it is really just that story told in a very classic way. So it, it's interesting to just see um, the tale told like with such a classic slow brooding style where it's really just is the plot taking the lead i think it's worth delving into that cold clinical style a bit further chris because it does suit a dune story really well i love sci-fi films that um they don't have a, a crisp clean and beautiful vision of the future I like how it's grimy and dirty you know on a on a desert planet and i think Villeneuve does that. Uh, sorry, I've, I've done it. <laughs> I've done a bad pronunciation there. Okay, um, so Villeneuve, Villeneuve is how it Villeneuve. is. <laughs> yeah. oh, Villeneuve, okay. Oh, Villeneuve, Villeneuve. Thank you. And Villeneuve does that really well here. The one thing that I think is quite lacking it in in his adaptation is perhaps in some of the performances. I would say that the emotional side of the film the the heavy lifting is done more by the the soundtrack and the visuals that create this atmosphere and experience rather than the performances of the characters i'm not sure if you agree with me on that but that was how i interpreted the film i think i, I agree I, I compl- yeah <laughs> i completely agree as, as chris was about to say as well um i think the score especially it, it has that i mean the score and the, the visuals it, it kind of Plays that role. I think it's the only uh, maybe theme I could find really in what Villeneuve was doing with this film is the idea of being completely struck down. Uh, maybe that's not quite right, but you feel overwhelmed, right, overwhelmed by the score and by the set design. And I think in the yeah. same way that the main character is overwhelmed by everything that the world around him is is doing, right? In, in a sense, everything that's expected of him. And I think in that sense, I agree that the soundtrack. The score and and the the set design do more uh, character building than really the performances do, which is not to say that the performance was bad, but I, I could not really, aside from one we'll talk about later, um, I could not really pick one of the main performers that really impressed me in that way. Yeah, sure, because I don't feel that anyone put forward a particularly mesmerizing performance, but at the same time, I don't feel there was any. Um, weaknesses in in the cast. I think everyone did exactly what what was required, but um, it was Villeneuve's direction that really lifted and, and elevated the film for me. Yeah, like I was about to say, I completely agree. And I think it ties a little bit to the cold and clinical style, and a little bit to what I talked about with classic presentation too, because it's not really like amplifying emotional atmosphere or anything of that kind. The characters here or, or the performers uh, bringing the characters to life are doing it almost more with just how they look and express themselves almost a little not not quite like statues I mean this is not Robert Person but but, <laughs> but uh, they're kind of it's kind of iconographic in a way it, it's really just you have the, especially if you look at the Harkonnen family but even with the uh, Dark Radies as well it, you just get that look down and then the actors uh, embody these characters and these uh, icons almost if you will and they do a really good job but i don't really think that perhaps with some exceptions i think timothy chalamet does bring a decent bit uh, into his role for instance but i don't think uh, the emotions of what carries this through or the uh, like 
uh, the acting is what scares this through. I think they're really just embodying this kind of uh, really classic iconography, which is really interesting to see in a modern blockbuster. Yeah, you bring up coldness, uh, Chris, and I think that's really important, right? This is an extremely cold film, and you could say that of most of uh, Villeneuve's films, and I think that's part of my not my reservation with the part one versus part two thing, right? Because I think there is the the film needs uh, the story needs at one point to bring some warmth warmth in, but naturally that's something that would more happen in part two, and so. That's where I'm kind of in suspended judgment about this film, right? Because it really feels like, yeah, it is a part one. And, and so I'm waiting to see if Enough can make that switch. Uh, I, yeah, we'll see. It, it's really it's impossible to tell, especially with the Zendaya character, right? Which is basically non-existent here. I mean, it, it's basically a tease. Uh, and so we'll see what comes of that, but it's impossible to say now. Or, or if he even wants to do that, if he even wants to bring in that warmth, I mean, it might be that he just <laughs> refuses to do it. It, it might be. I, I don't think I want that, but it's possible that he might convince me. You never know. It's it's our good old debate, Chris. It always comes back. It's true. Yes, we always go, uh, go on about this. You want the warmth, I want the coldness. Now, in, in this case, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those films that a lot of people could argue to be like technically flawless. It's one of those, it's one of those really masterly well done films, but I could actually have used a bit more warmth there, especially <laughs> given the kind of, especially given the kind of material it seeks to adapt. Because you can tell that the original writing is not cold. Like, the original writing has a lot of comedy in it. And I think by not uh, really bringing that out, uh, the film loses something. Yeah, I think more than comedy, there's the writing. It's very well, a well-written book, uh, Dune. You, you haven't read it, but uh, the style of it is, is quite notable. Which, and there's also a um, kind of sensuality to the way Herbert writes, which is not really present here. But again, it shows up more in the second part. So, <laughs> how to say? I think the odd elements of comedy that, that were used, I just remember a, a couple of lines throughout the film, didn't really work for me. They felt more like lines that were introduced to the film purely to create a trailer that would appeal to the masses, like, oh, look, this film has got some humour in it, like um, the superhero films that we see so often. And it, I found that it was kind of jarring in a way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this was the worst part of the film. I think there's this one really early scene, for instance, where. Uh, uh, essentially, the uh, emperor's entourage is arriving to give uh, the news that they're gonna take the family is gonna take over uh, Arrakis, and Oscar Isaac's Duke uh, Leto tells uh, Gurn, his sidekick, essentially his uh, second in command, to smile, and yeah. uh, Josh Brolin, just, uh, as as Gurn just goes, "I am smiling," <laughs> and it's like that. That's this kind of. Like, it's real, this 80s, 70s, 60s humor, you know, where it's, uh, uh, where you kind of just pump up the comedy and you have this kind of uh, slightly more pulpy or even campy or just, like, more fun-loving film. Like, this, this works, but here, you know... That's not the atmosphere at all. The atmosphere doesn't call for it. The atmosphere is the same, cold, really well-composed, beautiful. It doesn't even colorful. You get the Benjamin Clementine cameo as the Herald of Change. Like, it's almost, you no know, dancing out. It's, it's just this big set piece that's so well-calculated. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't belong there at all. 
I would totally agree with that. And that was one of the lines that I was referring to. It just felt out of place and, you know, it wasn't really required then. Um, as as you'd say, it's, it's a, a very serious film and Villeneuve takes it very seriously. So these little elements of humour don't really work very well. Yeah, I, I think it's they're really at odds with what the film is doing. And that can be good in some way, I think, the... The character of Duncan Idaho is an example of where it kind of works, right? To have a character that's kind of at odds with the tone of the film. But yeah, I agree with that particular example that it feels pretty out of place, not in a great way. I'm not sure if even Duncan Idaho fits that well with the film. I'm no complaints about uh, Jason Mamua. I, I think he's just as uh, solid as everyone else. But that that role in particular is probably one of, and this storyline for that character is without a doubt, you know, one of the more... Uh, out of place things in this film just compared to the rest of the tone because that again really is 80s comedy sorry 80s action comedy or space adventure space opera style uh, character plotting it it's uh, it just feels so odd that it's there well see to me he's a bright spot um i was mentioning earlier that there's one performance that i think stands out and i think it's his uh, and hmm. I, I, I think the reason for that is as i mentioned i I want to know if Villeneuve is called just because that's who he is or if he's being purposeful. And I think the, that character is giving me hope that he is being purposeful with the way uh, he is being super cold and super um, yeah, overwhelming again. Because these are characters that are kind of stuck in this political intrigue, uh, in these huge issues that are much bigger than themselves. And Duncan Idaho is this character who is kind of outside of that. And I think that's why the fact that he's uh, so different from the rest is actually something I would say is a, is a positive for me. I would agree. I thought that Duncan's uh, narrative was a great part of the film, to be honest. Memo's um, performance was, was really good. And as Matthew would say, it, it, it's great to see another side of the traitors. Is it? I'm going to do another awful pronunciation here. Is it? <laughs> What's their I think, they pronounce it, I think they pronounce it Atreides in, in, Atreides. in the film. Okay. It's great to see another side of the Atreides clan uh, because we're, we're dealing with the, the key members of the family for the majority of films. So it's good to see more of a, a common man, I would say. And he brings a lot of heart to the role. And I, I thought his narrative worked particularly well. I mean, honestly, he's the only character who feels like a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure if I entirely agree with that, but we can probably expand that discussion for uh, the Pope section. Um, Is is there anything else about this film that uh, you thought didn't work or which, uh, which hurt it in some way? There was a part that didn't work for me, but I think we'll have to save that for the spoilers territory. Um, but to be honest, I think we're getting bogged down in things that didn't work mm. because I feel like we've just been <laughs> laying into a film that I absolutely love for the past 10 minutes, which feels really well, wrong. I think, but I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's fine to criticise it, I suppose. But really, I, I want to be building this film up because I had a great time with it. <laughs> yeah, me too. So let's, uh, let's try to uh, brighten up the positivity here. Then, Is there anything else that you thought really stood out in the film? I mean, I don't think we have to bring it to everyone's attention because they're all already aware of it, but these sandworms, they were incredible. Oh, yes. I thought they were actually done 
quite well in Lynch's version, but here they were just astounding. I mean, the, there's the clip in the trailer where you see the worm just make the first huge appearance, and that is breathtaking. It, it's absolutely incredible, um, and I think that worked really well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, they looked spectacular. Yeah, I also have a good memory of the the, the worms in the Lynch film, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think they were good. I also think he's keeping it. He's not quite giving you the full thing, right? I mean, you see, you see mm. a decent bit of the worm, but it's at night. It's very good, but I feel like he's really keeping the grand spectacle of the worms uh, for later still. Uh, but yeah, I agree that the worms are, are really good. I think it's also a question of less is more and just uh, building it all up. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'd also like to mention the action scenes as well. Uh, there's a particular battle taking place on um, a flight of stairs that I thought was choreographed wonderfully. It doesn't go on for that long. It doesn't give you a lot to really grab hold of, but in the short time of space that we see it, it's incredibly visceral and memorable, and I thought that stood out quite well for me. Yeah, I think the fight scenes, well, especially it's the way um, it's a way that Villeneuve uses the shields. I think that that really makes the fight scenes have a sense of personality uh, that can be hard to achieve in a film like this. Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree that the fight scenes are, are quite good. Yeah, I, I completely I agree here. I think that the choreography here is spot on. And that the shields do absolutely add something. And I really like how reasonable uh, they're done. Like, these are not impenetrable shields. They're not some kind of uh, absolute magic. They're just like a little bit of extra armor. And I think it's handled in a very intriguing way. And it's used to amplify tensions in some places where you're wondering how long will, you know, this armor last. So I, I really think that it's uh, done, that, that part is also done exceptionally well. A lot, essentially, all of the technology brought into this film from spaceship design to weapons to the towns themselves uh, i think every all of those details that really work it makes the world come alive feel realistic feel lived in so i, I really want to praise all of the set designers and prop makers etc and the, the action coordinators because they did a wonderful job I would definitely agree with how realistic and believable it is. This incredible world just comes to life. And even in the simple choices such as having uh, some of the soldiers, how they drop down from the sky, just slowly float down it, it feels so otherworldly, yet it also feels really natural in the sense of the film. And these little touches really elevate it to the next level. When we're talking about realism, I think the one thing that uh, perhaps feel, may feel slightly off is the fact that we are over 8,000 years in the future, but the world structure is, has essentially returned to the Middle Ages with uh, the large empires, you have clans, the Atreides families can essentially here almost feels like you know a Scottish war clan in a way. It's uh, like... How how do you how realistic do you think it is, or does it need to be realistic at all? But how how do you think of a future that many thousand years in the future that kind of has this system that's so similar uh, to what we had such a long time ago? Yeah, I think it's a little ridiculous, but I I don't think it's supposed to be realistic, right? It's set a thousand years in in the future. It, it should not be this easily recognizable as a political system, but 
you know, it's it's easy to say, but harder to imagine something that we would not recognize, right? So it's it's more. I don't think this is a, an anticipation uh, story, right? It's not a story that is trying to predict what will happen to humanity. Uh, I don't think that's yeah, what he's doing at all. <laughs> I, I think what what Herbert and Villeneuve now are doing is more... Well, I don't know what Villeneuve is doing, because it's part <laughs> one. <laughs> but uh, it's more uh, an idea of colonialism, maybe. It, it, I, I see a lot more of colonialism, along with some empire structures that are kind of resemble feudal lords. Uh, but to me, it's much more about colonialism because we have this story of very Lawrence of Arabia, right? Of this yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, protagonist, which is going to go among the desert natives. So I guess I guess it makes me think more think more of that. I think it's it's fine. It does not bother me. It's a complex political system with people acting in their interest, and I think that's that. It makes sense internally, and that is what matters. I think. I would agree. It's definitely easy to buy into this world. And as Matthew said, it's not meant to be, you know, a prediction of our future. It's just an imagined alternative future, perhaps. And it's kind of relatable as well. The, the story, the battle over the, the resources, etc. It's very grounded in um, human plights that are, are relatable in some respect. So I think Villeneuve does a, a great job of adapting the material. Although it's it's difficult to say when I've I've not read the book, but I mean what he does with the source novel is commendable because he's made a, an exceptional film. So I I am looking forward to to delving into the books. Uh, yeah, it's a book that was written in the seventies, and you feel it with the spice. Red right? spice is like both oil and LSD, and so that, that's a very uniquely seventies or sixties combination. Uh, anyway, I, I do think it's it's all very interesting. The world that that is created here, whether or not it it relates to what would happen, I think it's irrelevant. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it is a space opera, and I mean, we can talk about you know how silly it is that you know they're using the bagpipe as their uh, chief musical instrument in you know approaching wars and battles in uh, eight thousand years in the future, but like you don't really care about that. Yeah, the the fact that he went with with Scotland for the Atreides planet is kind of funny because the the way it's described in the book is it's basically described as Earth, right? It's just a planet with a lot of water and some land that some of it is green, <laughs> and so I think we assume because of Star Wars that when we see one scene on the planet, that's all of the planet is. <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's funny that it's it becomes the Scotland planet with the bagpipes and everything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And I think Star Wars is a fun point of a comparison too, because yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're really, really comparable in terms of scope, uh, the hero with, uh, you know, a potential, uh, birthright or messianic quality, massive, uh, you know, an empire, an empire with a potentially <laughs> evil emperor constructing everything. It, it has, it essentially has everything Star Wars has as well. So they're very good, uh, side by side comparison pieces. There's also the, the juxtaposition of sci-fi and fantasy. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's definitely fantasy elements in Dune, the desert, which is central in, in both of them. But I do think the, the book Dune and the, and the film, this one anyway, they both do take themselves, they, they both are more ambitious thematically uh, than Star Wars is. Well, Star Wars is very much a personal story. It's, just, it's an emotional story, a hero's journey, and it's not about huge issues. Right? We're not meant to think that hard about how the Empire works. I do think in this case we are meant to think 
in the long run harder about how the empire works and how it relates to real political systems. And Star Wars feels like more of a fun adventure kind of family orientated film. I don't know whether I'd say the same about Dune and that's perhaps because of the the serious and and the cold nature. Um, I can't imagine young children grasping onto Dune as easily as perhaps a Star Wars (laughs) That's absolutely true. I mean, I'm not sure if you could adapt uh, I do in a way that's very child friendly. I mean, even even Lynch's version was far far from child friendly. So it, it's yeah. a good, it's a very good question. I think it probably could, but uh, I do agree the material here is a little bit darker. Yeah, I think this is more child friendly than the Lynch version, really. If anything, <laughs> absolutely, and and I think it would be really really fun to just go back and uh, compare these films a little bit as well, because I know that all of us have been catching up with uh, Lynch's Dune before this episode. How would you say they compare? It's a very difficult comparison because they are two totally different approaches. I wasn't actually going to rewatch. Lynch's Dune, but I found myself still awake at half eleven last night. <laughs> Why not chuck it on? And I actually only got an hour and a half into the film. I stopped it at the same point that Villeneuve's Dune ended. And it was interesting to note that there's only 45 minutes left to go. So somehow Lynch fits Dune Part 2 into 45 minutes, which might come to explain why his film was derided so much. (laughs) But I still think that Lynch's film has quite a few redeeming qualities. Again, the the set design is impressive for the time that it was made, although some of the effects feel a bit hokey. If you think back, this was 1984. This was seven years after Star Wars, so we've seen epic space battles, and the effects in some part feel... More akin to the kind of thing that you see in in, fif- in the 50s with these dodgy backgrounds, um, especially when there's spaceships involved. But the, the actual set designs and the costuming is, is excellent. But I think that the main issue with it is that there's such a complex story that's being condensed into a small space of runtime. So characters aren't given the full due that is required for audiences to, to really buy into this film. Yeah, as much as I have reservations about the Villeneuve version, uh, I do think it's it's much better, but much more accomplished than the Lynch version, uh, which feels like a compromise between Lynch and a studio, right? because Lynch was not quite who he is now. And yeah, it has definitely fun aspects. I don't think the worms, as we said, are good. There's a lot of set design that is that is good. It, it goes for a very kitschy set design, which, which but but it works kind of. I mean, it's just not a very good film. It's just not very... Like, attempting to do all of that narratively in such a short time is, is just very difficult. I definitely understand why Villeneuve went with two parts. Yeah, it, it's a film that is charming in some senses, right? And it's fun to see some of its performances. Uh, it's fun to see Kyle MacLachlan in that main role, I think. I think it's pretty good. But yeah, it's it's kind of... It has its charms, but it's not really successful. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good representation of it. it. has its charms. I mean, honestly, for me, this 
is and for Lynch actually too. This is the only real failure of his uh, career. I mean, Lynch says this is his one major regret that he, you know, realized he wasn't a sinking ship and started uh, selling out. And uh, he, uh, like, there was a TV version of this where he even uh, removed, got his name removed from. So he is really unhappy with. And I think part of the reason why the film uh, only carries on for 45 minutes for Dune Part 2 is the fact that Lynch actually presented a four-hour cut to the producers and they cut it, said that, you know, two hours and 17 minutes or two hours and 16 minutes were the absolute max and essentially forced recuts of all of it. So those last 45 minutes or so almost feel like a collage of just this happened, this happened, this happened. And it's that part just feels terribly hokey. Um, I, I think th- there's there's a lot of things to appreciate with it. I like uh, both of you think the set design was actually really good. It's clear that a lot of thought went into these uh, these places, and regardless of uh, the decade, I think just a lot of the set design looks great. Some of the effects, not so much. I mean, certainly a few steps below uh, Star Wars, but it's a decently looking film, uh, and some of the set design is great. But it's just, it's so campy, it's so silly, it's, it's, it's all over the place, it's a, it's, it's, it's essentially what you could have expected an adaptation to be based on, you know, the comedic elements here, because it does lean into the pulp, it, it goes beyond the pulp, it goes full on camp silliness, and I'm not sure how well it works, I didn't enjoy it as much as I did the first time, I rewatched it for, essentially for the first time, the second time I saw it before this episode, and, yeah, it's a bit of, it just feels like a bit of a mess, it's a silly mess, it's partially enjoyable, there's some moments of greatness there, but uh, yeah, it's not, it's Lynch's worst for sure. <laughs> it's also the result of, yeah, you can see why Lynch was drawn to the material, right? I mean, dreams are really important in Dune, and obviously we all know that Lynch loves dreams, but it's really the result of him and the studio wanting more of a Star Wars ripoff, essentially, and also the result of this very long, drawn-out process that led to the film, right? The, the documentary uh, Jodorowsky's Dune really shows you how it was an insane project that had to be brought down, and um, I guess the result had to be compromised, I suppose. It's not, it, it was kind of an inevitability, it feels like. Yeah, it, it's true. And I think uh, I do, I, it's been a few years since I saw the documentary of the Rowski's Duna, but how many hours did he demand his version to be? I think it was over seven at least. I don't remember. It's been a few years also, but yeah, extremely long. I mean, his project was completely insane. Yeah. It could not be done, definitely. It was, it's like the parody of the insane 70s director who is given all the money, except this time he went so far that even in the 70s it did not go. It's, it's heartbreaking to watch Jodorowsky's um, Dune to see how close it came to being made, though. Mm. It seemed that it was just, you know, short on funding in the final few stages, and he's got the whole thing storyboarded. And yeah, go, and it's it's really sad that it it never came to fruition. And then, you know, Lynch did what he could, but it was what I'd call a, a brilliant failure. As we've said, there are redeemable qualities in in the film, and you know, fans of films like Flash Gordon, you know, can find a lot to love here. But it, you know, Villeneuve's film is far superior. One thing that really made me chuckle in. David Lynch's film is you've got Patrick Stewart who plays the 
role of, of Gurney. He's obviously depicted as a, a brave soldier, a, a fighter. And then you see him running into battle, holding his pet dog, a little pug under his arm. <laughs> and that just, that <laughs> cracked me up. Like, what on earth is going to happen to his dog there? It's not a fighting dog, it's just a pug. And that made me chuckle. <laughs> I think it's actually the family that created this dog, so I guess it's like, uh, must protect the dog. <laughs> yeah. So any dog lover will immediately just add plus 10 points to that just for uh, the accuracy of how far you will go to protect your dog, I suppose. But I think one of the things that's interesting, though, in, uh, in watching David Lynch's Dune is just how similar like, the actual plotting is. Almost all of the same scenes, or at least the core scenes, are included from how many characters are introduced to the vital moments, and they're handled with almost with very similar selections of dialogue. There's obviously a, some changes here and there, but I think it's it's interesting that, you know, clearly, even though Dune is a fairly long book, it's clear what the core moments are, and it's just those two films, like, a lot of these scenes could just be placed right next to each other. And uh, the comparisons, despite, you know, setting, acting, everything being different, it's, it's still a very uh, similar plot adaptation. I mean, it's a, it's a great example in how plot is not everything, right? You can, you can have two very, yeah. very different yeah. films with the same plot. Absolutely. I think it, it, yeah, it just shows that, you know, get the, the... like I mean, obviously this wasn't really a Lynch film because he compromised so much with the producer, but it really shows just get a different director in, get a different idea in, and you can just, like, the same plot can be anything you want it to be. And that is why it's so sad that Todorovsky didn't get to do any of it, because in the 70s, I mean, he was at his prime. I mean, he was going to have Orson Welles in this. He was going to have Salvador Dali as the emperor. I mean, it would have been through the roof. And I just I still remember when I was watching that documentary and I saw the drawings. And I mean, the artist and the team he collected which the documentary makes a point of too. Like, they went on to work on the Alien franchise and other sci-fi franchises, and they actually brought many of those ideas in there. So it's just, like, the amount of talent that was actually working on this project. I mean, I, I think it would have been absolutely spectacular. I, I highly doubt it would have been a good film. I mean, I don't know. I'm really not convinced. I, I think the... <laughs> The big art book we got from it and the documentary is probably better than whatever the film would have been, but it would have been interesting. <laughs> it's, it's possibly true. Like, at least for me, I mean, I love Jodorowsky's surrealist uh, works, and I think I mean, he really hasn't made, like, at that point, he hadn't made a bad film. And I mean, even his uh, autobiography kind of thing, which is like a three-parter now, he's on two parts already, I'm still, I'm still waiting for a third, that works too. So I think it. But I think it would have worked. I think it would have been a genuinely great film. I'm just not sure. Uh, it's just too bad he couldn't have like done it as a miniseries or done it in installations. Like, why did he have to demand a seven-hour movie with a big studio? I mean, today it would have been no problem whatsoever if we'd have gotten it on Netflix, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's just proof that uh, I, I guess filmmakers have more options and chances today. Um, I don't know. I mean, the 70s... You had a lot of chance, and then Khodorovsky did some crazy films. I sadly haven't seen them, I, I, I must admit. Uh, I will see them at some point, but yeah, I don't know that you have less opportunities now. Uh, I think only in terms of making longer projects, like in terms of getting funding for anything you wanted. Clearly, uh, the 70s was better because 
Uh, like literally, they were gonna. They were, they were literally negotiating with a surrealist, crazy director to end to do a major film for a major studio uh, and handle that property. And they were essentially giving him a free reign to do the craziest things in the world, which is just insane. But I think in terms of actually getting something that long made, I think that part is easier than ever before, probably just because of the fact that we have seen a great rise of. A limited series and uh, that type of content getting larger budgets. Right, yeah, that, that, that's true. That's true. We get more very long films, um, also because of digital, I would guess. Uh, I also think it's it's kind of fun to imagine what Khodorovsky would give would give um, would work out as a Marvel director, which is kind of the trajectory now. <laughs> Basically, let him do one of two crazy scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they kind of let the Taika Waititi do it, didn't they, with uh, Thor Ragnarok? They just had to like calm it down with the main plot, but they let him go a bit crazy with the uh, with the gladiator stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it would be really interesting to see. All three of these directors that have been attached to Dune are some of my favorite directors. So it is a shame that we didn't see Jodorowsky's version, but I don't know how well his surrealistic qualities would have worked with the material. We saw how Lynch's nightmarish approach to it kind of fell through and he's also a very accomplished director. So I think that finally with Villeneuve we've got the perfect director because he is so used to creating these grandiose sci-fi films and as we said his, his cold and clinical approach to it really fits the source material very well and i think that's why he's you know done the best job he was perfectly suited to do the adaptation that uh, we were all hoping for that's really uh, interesting to say that i always assumed that the perfect adaptation of this would have been slightly more on the warmer of fan sides but i I can see your point entirely and i think it's really worth noting too that uh renew actually decided that like, he has been interested in doing this property for a while, but he wanted experience first. I mean, his experience in this was actually doing uh, doing Arrival and then uh, Blade Runner uh, 2049. So I think it's clear that he's kind of been building up to this as well. He's had this on his mind and he's been, you know, handling these bigger sci-fi properties just to make sure he was ready. And that... That might just be because he saw how Lynch uh, failed by jumping in on his first big production uh, like he did too. So it, it, it's nice to see that you know we can plan that well and build up that experience and then really go for it. I think that's part of his ethos as well because after he directed um, his film Maelstrom, which I feel bad about because I haven't actually seen it um, in 2000, he was really disappointed with the film. and. He retreated away from directing for nine years until he directed his his next film because he wanted to build on his experience and make sure that he was up to the task of delivering the film that he he wanted to deliver. And it shows again that he's he's doing this with with the sci-fi films, as as you explained, Chris. He's been building up to June, but I would honestly say that Blade Runner twenty forty nine his his masterpiece, and I don't think that he's going to be able to top that with June part two but I will certainly be first in line to find out yeah I don't think you can quite top Blade Runner 2049 either though I didn't love it as much as either of you it is also a really stunning wonderful big world 
great great atmosphere stunning designs and i think it just goes that step further so i i struggle to see dune part two managing to do that but it but it's possible and yeah i think looking at Renew's style as a sci-fi director though like and just how this type of blockbuster is now actually becoming viable because Blade Runner 2049 didn't do that well as some people had hoped uh, while this is actually a genuine blockbuster I mean they were they were actually skeptical of Greenlighting Part 2 like Will Renew went into this film without Part 2 greenlit it was only greenlit after the first numbers came came back after the after the premiere, so this could really just have been one of those films left in the cold without that part two, which if it didn't do well, which would have been an absolute uh, travesty uh, and a really big risk, and, and and a really big risk as well. So, what do you think about this cold, uh, calculated style that that Villeneuve is really bringing back to uh, the blockbuster scene? But before getting to that question, I do I do want to talk about a bit about. Um, the way in which I think Dune relates to Blade Runner 2049, which, as you mentioned, is a film I absolutely love. And I think a lot of what I love about Blade Runner is two things that Dune doesn't quite do yet, but I see hints of it, right? It is that uh, juxtaposition of some pulpy elements in a very heady, uh, very intellectual sci-fi story. I think it's it, it's not much there in Dune, but it is a bit with, with Duncan Idaho. And perhaps more importantly is this kind of uh, the way he deconstructs uh, the the hero's journey, the idea of the chosen one. I think that's the central thing of Blade Runner 2049. It's how these narratives we build for ourselves uh, can be so powerful. And it's interesting in Dune, it's the reverse, but it's, it's a narrative that is imposed on the protagonist and how it seems to be a suffocating thing in, in the film as I see it now, but it's hard to say exactly where Villeneuve is going with it because we'll see with with part two. With regard to the, the this new blockbuster style, it's interesting because I, I don't think that Dune has been successful. It's been quite successful in, in France and everyone around me loves it. It's a weird experience. I'm, I'm the least enthusiastic person I know about the film in real life. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's not like it's a huge, huge blockbuster either. I think it's it's more like that kind of Christopher Nolan uh, niche, right? Or where, where you can do... Um, big budget and be successful, but it's not like a Star Wars film, right? It's it's not going to be uh, this insane moneymaker uh, that changes everything. That being but said, Christopher how... Nolan. So, go ahead, go ahead. I just say I was going to say I just love how you say Christopher Nolan niche because I mean he's made some of the biggest blockbusters uh, ever, essentially. Like he has yeah. films like. Yeah, yeah. What I mean is, is just like there's not many people like him, right? It's he's not. He's obviously very popular, but um, he is doing his thing. I don't think there's many directors you can compare to him, uh, and I think Villeneuve is one of them. And what I was going to get to is that clearly Christopher Nolan with The Dark Knight, he had a huge influence on how blockbusters were made. So I do think something like Dune's uh, can have that effect, maybe, though it will not. It will not be as successful as The Dark Knight was. So it's hard to say. Yeah, I think you're completely right there, and I think it's it's also very fair to place uh, Nolan and Renew into very similar categories because those really are uh, the two biggest names that are working within that type of massive budget, 
and they're, they're both very accomplished uh, directors with very clear artistic visions, very clear styles uh, that are bringing really different elements into that type of hyper uh, mainstream that just is on everybody's lips. Now, I agree, Dune probably won't reach the highest levels of Nolan, but it's in there in the conversation, it's making those numbers. So it will be interesting to see just what type of effect that will be and if it will indeed be more directors like Nolan and Villeneuve directing films uh, that are topping the box office or if it will continue to be primarily uh, the type of uh, Star Wars and Avengers films that we have been uh, seeing recently. I would love to see more films like Dune and... It's clear that Villeneuve and Nolan are paving their own way and doing their own things and they're being trusted with these um, incredibly large projects and it's so encouraging to see. Um, but I think it's such a they've both got such distinct visions that are quite difficult to replicate. So I don't think we'll see an influx of similar um, projects, but I would like to think that these are the kind of films that would inspire potential young filmmakers to make their way into the industry and will be films that will be talked about for years to come. To be honest, I kind of hope he doesn't have the kind of influence that Nolan ended up having because I think that brand of self-seriousness can really be annoying uh, if, it's, if it's not backed up with you know, an accomplished artistic vision. And so I, I kind of hope it doesn't happen like you, you described it, Chris, to be honest. No, that's fair enough. And like we talked about earlier, I do think that the self-seriousness of uh, Dune is one of its, uh, or rather the fact that it's including in these kind of jokes while being self-serious is one of its weakest points. And uh, yeah, if it simply ends up with an other era like the uh, late 2000s uh, era where, you know, we just got a lot of uh, purposefully bleak films that uh, tried to just be a little bit darker but didn't necessarily have that extra edge. It didn't really do much. The variety is always good as well. Mixing things up is always good. So if you cultivate like a climate where that's more acceptable and where those films do better, I do think that we probably would see more great directors uh, being able to enter that realm as well. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, question there, but I actually think I disagree with you. I think that if uh, we allow for blockbusters to uh, be a bit uh, more artistically inclined or to be a bit more serious, a bit, uh, be a bit more ambitious, even if some of those projects or a lot of those projects end up being mediocre, I think it would actually open the ways for a few more uh, directors doing it, just as it's quite possible that Nolan opened the way a little bit for Villeneuve. And I do actually think that one thing that's really interesting uh, to me here is that there all kinds of comparisons made between uh, the way Villeneuve has made this film, like what his approach is, but it, to me it feels very classic. I mean, I would almost compare it with... Uh, David Lean, for instance, and especially Lawrence of Arabia, which I know is an inspiration for Dune as well, uh, an actual inspiration for the book, which just seems very f especially fitting for uh, Renew to go in that type of uh, direction. But it does actually seem to me that we may be leaning back a little bit to a time when there were a lot of directors that are not considered master directors working 
in these massive, massive uh, productions. And at least to me, that would be really exciting uh, to see more of. Yeah, the, the David Lean comparison is interesting because uh, I don't think Villeneuve has the, the romanticism of, of Lean at all, but I, I don't think that's what you were saying, right? You're saying more about the, the place of a director who, who makes these hugely popular films and is also you know, a major auteur. Uh, I, I think I don't think we are seeing a change in that. I think the relevant factor happening now is still more the MCU than it is Dune, right? Uh, so I think people like Villeneuve, like Nolan, can. That's why I was saying it's a niche because not 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 a niche in the sense that it's a small thing, but an, but in the sense that it's very much around an individual who manages to get to that level. I don't think we are seeing systemic change where you have a bunch of major authors are going to do these blockbusters. I, I just don't see us uh, getting back to that right now. Yeah, that's fair enough. And you're probably right there, to be honest with you, though it would be great to see. And, and after going into a bit more of uh, be an historical discussion, if you will, let's bring back the fun factor and play the great new segment that I like to call the pulp factor. So, uh, we've been talking a little bit about the elements in this, and we can play this with uh, Lynch's Dune as well, maybe we can call it the cam factor, but how pulpy do you think Villeneuve's film actually is? Are there pulp elements in it at all? Um, well, there, there is the pulp element of Duncan Idaho, I think that's really the beginning and the end of oh, it, yes. it's, it's really just, just him, to me. Uh, and so I would say, if we think about it on the scale of zero to hundred, I guess we have to understand what zero and hundred are. Right? So zero is like an essay film by Strobenwille or something like that, and uh, and what's a hundred? Uh, I guess uh, Flash Gordon, right? Uh, so <laughs> yes. June on, on that scale, on that scale, it's like maybe uh, thirty or something, just because sci-fi Ooh. inherently mm. has some pulp to it. Um, so, and, and like, so I guess the baseline for sci-fi is maybe 20 and maybe it's his more like a 25, then. let's say that, 25. <laughs> I think I would go slightly lower, maybe a, a 20 on the scale. I, I don't think that pulp is a word that I would have used to describe Villeneuve's Dune. Perhaps it is slightly more fitting for Lynch's Dune, but again, it's not something that would come to mind um i think it you know it, it takes itself too seriously to be considered uh, a pulp outing yeah that's a pretty fair point i mean pulp is usually associated with low quality and yeah. uh, there's, there's just no denying that this is a very high quality uh production but i i think i would go with a pulp rating of 30 or perhaps even 35, because to me, at least, it's not just uh, Duncan Idaho, and that character, I agree, uh, that is all pulp from, you know, the the macro hugging to the signs he makes when he, you know, goes off to save the day. It, that, that is just, uh, that is just the pulpy cliches turned up to, uh, if not a hundred, at least 80 or 70, you know. <laughs> but, but I think there's a lot of, uh, other more 
pulpy elements there. Like you have a lot of the plotting uh, itself. You have those little jokes, like uh, like you mentioned earlier, but this is I am smiling, or it's some of the running into battle for the Duke scenes, um, some of the uh, other slight comedic uh, efforts in there, and just all of the. Uh, you know, hero tropes that are played in there. I think you will undercut them. I think there'll be some really fun stuff with this in the future. But, you know, you have this essentially... It is, like like Mathieu said, sci-fi is inherently, almost inherently pulpy on some level. But when you have, you know, these character encounters where you're proving their word quickly with some battling and it's it's all of these uh, easy sci-fi genre elements, I just think that the pulp kind of seeps in. And, uh, yes, I would go with... 35 but i think that's pretty good we're all between 20 and 35 we're all well under 50 so i think that if you have to pass 50 to be pulpy at least like dune pass it's not pulpy it's uh it's declared safe but what about uh lynch's dune then and uh, to be more appropriate to it we can call this uh additional segment the camp factor. So, out of a hundred, how campy do you think uh, Lynch's work is? So, I do think pulpy and campy, campy to me are different things. But uh, I, I guess Lynch's bo- Lynch's Dune is both. <laughs> so, so that's fine. Um, it's I don't know, like a eighty-five <laughs> or something. It's it's <laughs> it's quite pulpy. One thing I would like to to add, though, Chris, is after we answer this, is how would you rate Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I think that's an Ooh. interesting point of comparison. It is. It is indeed. That's really difficult. I think that the style is turned up even more, but the plot elements there are equally pulpy, to be honest. I think it has that essentially moustache-twirling villain whose uh, whole motive is essentially uh, being villainous. So uh, it's hard to say. I might honestly say it has a higher pull factor just for a villain alone, put it around 40% maybe, because that one is the one that really just lives and breeds a lot of the genre tropes. And I think because it's even more stylized uh, and not necessarily... It's still cold, it's still really new, but I think it's it, it has more color uh, and, it, and it obviously plays even more with the neonart uh, tropes, like just as the original Blade Runner does. I think it it works and it fits better. I would agree with your assessment there, Chris. It definitely feels like it owes a lot more to film noir as well, with the mysterious protagonist with a, a you know a, a dark past and and things like that. And it obviously ramps up the neo noir, and I think the the noir elements do feel a lot pulpier, which obviously they're not present in Dune whatsoever. And what about the Dune, the Lynch version, uh, Tom? Since you you didn't answer that. Because I, I derailed us. <laughs> well, I think the Lynch version, as you said, it's much closer to Pulp than Villeneuve's version. And with the, the camp factor, when you include that as well, um, it is probably past 50. Maybe maybe going up to the, the 70 range, I reckon. Moderate compared to Mathieu's 85, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, if you put... Um, Flash Gordon at the top. Although yeah. it's on the way to becoming Flash Gordon, I mean, <laughs> it is. It's getting least on the way there. Yeah, yeah. The the um, Queen soundtrack for Flash Gordon that is at least thirty points, right? So <laughs> I'll put unit. Uh, sorry, no, yeah, Lynch's unit seventy. <laughs> that feels right to me. 
But with regard to Blade Runner, I think I would basically put it at 50. I think that's what makes the film great to me. It's, it's that it, yeah, it yeah. has those purple elements. I think you mentioned the villain, of course, Jared Leto, but also uh, Sylvia Hux, I think it's how it's pronounced. Mm. She's basically a henchwoman. I mean, if you have a oh, henchman yes. or henchwoman, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're pulpy. I mean. yes. But that's technically what uh, Dune does too, though, with Raban. I mean, he is essentially the henchman. Yeah, we don't see him that much, right, compared to... No, no. Oh, definitely not, no. And like you said, it's just amplified so much more in Blade Runner 2049. So, uh, I think for me, if I'm going to rate the camp score of uh, David Lynch's uh, Dune, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I would honestly go even beyond Matthew. I would put it at a camp score of 90 or, or maybe even 95, because this is almost as close to Flash Gordon as you're going to get. Like you literally have red-headed villains, like these, like kind of, they look like trolls almost with big bushy eyebrows. You, when <laughs> the eyebrows, oh god! <laughs> and then you have the like we talked about how amazing we thought the uh, shield technology was in Villeneuve's uh, Dune in uh, Lynch's verse there's essentially this massive Lego blocks it's like this it's like they're wearing uh, these blue fight suits or like this like there's like squares on top of them and they're, they're squares bouncing into each other like I think all of the fa factors there just it's uh, it comes off as just really silly and to an extent that's honestly one of the better things with the film. I think it lives and breeds that style of campiness too. So I think it's in some ways a strength, even though the production and the producers, etc., reeled it in. And I, I honestly think if it had gone slightly further all out, it might have been an even better film. Yeah, I think Dune, in terms of camp, it just isn't quite self-aware enough to, to go into camp for me, I think. But, but it's, it's a fine line. Yes, it's a very fine line. I think you're, you're on the point there because, like, when, like, you have those kind of, like, beam 50s, uh, movie kind of thing uh, going on there where, you know, McLaughlin is laying in bed and he's dreaming and he just goes, like, Dune, Desert Planet. And it's, <laughs> it's just so pompous and bizarre and stale. And it's, and I'm just not sure, like, I'm really not sure what's Lynch going all in like camp fun real angle was it trying to do something more normal because some of those scenes really could have been star wars or or close like it, it so it's it, it i guess you're right it's not self-aware enough to really cross that barrier but then again does camp need to be fully self-aware i guess that's one of those existential questions it's hard to answer maybe we'll do a camp episode one day but uh, yeah it's, it's too big for this <laughs> It is indeed. So yeah, let's try to book that in a full-on camp episode. And I think this discussion has almost run its course. So for all of you listeners who have not yet seen Villeneuve's Dune, or maybe David Lynch's Dune as well, let's just enter full-on spoiler territory here. And uh, talk about the ending, talk about the character fates, talk about how we felt about it, what worked, what didn't, and how do we feel about the film just leaving us right there at the end of the story. Spoiler warning. Well, that, I don't feel great about that. I mean, I, that, that is kind of my issue with the film, right? It does, it is, does not feel like a complete uh, thing. 
And it's funny because it has kind of the Return of the Jedi thing, not, not quite to that, uh, not Return of the Jedi, uh, the Return of the King thing, uh, not quite to that point, but with, with multiple moments that feel like endings. There's one point specifically where like you finally, finally meet like, Zendaya, and she says, uh, this is only the beginning. And I was thinking, oh yeah, well, obviously you ended there, but there's actually 25 minutes left or, or something. <laughs> so... I do think it's awkward, right? I think he he needed like the four plus hours, but he couldn't do it in one film. So he kind of almost arbitrarily ended it where he ended it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the most natural thing. Uh, and I, I don't think it works great. Yeah, I was also slightly disappointed with how it ended. Um, it's natural for a film that is split into two parts that it, it can't feel like a, a contained work, but it does leave some disappointment with the viewer because it doesn't feel like a, a natural place to really cut the story in two from what I've seen in, in um, from, of the story in, in Lynch's version. It feels like it was just in, you know, an arbitrary point so that they've reached in the story to, to stop. But having said that, I still absolutely love the experience and it wasn't enough to take away my enjoyment of the film, if anything, you know, it's got me hyped up for the second one. Um, and while we're talking about the ending as well, I'll now mention the other aspect of the film that I found really frustrating, which is when you see Paul riding the sandworm, it just felt so out of place and it felt almost silly. I didn't like how it was depicted. Just the, the whole film had been so serious and and crisp and perfect and then it it just felt a little daft to me i don't know if you found it it that scene similarly jarring but it didn't work i don't think uh, i guess it didn't i, I don't know I, I i did not it did not particularly shock me i guess it's it's a dream vision right so yeah it, it did not particularly yeah. register as something that weird to me yeah, I, I think this is one of those elements there that like I, I didn't really mind it too much. I didn't mind any of the more slightly more pulpy or silly elements uh, that much, honestly, because it, it is handled fairly well. It's just like a slight blip. But, but yeah, no, I, I think my, one of my least favorite moments was also one of the most pulpy moments. And since it's a bit of a spoiler, I can reveal it now, but it's, you know, the execution of uh, the traitor, where, which, you know, I'm not going to, if, if you're still listening and you just want mild spoilers, I won't spoil it too much, but essentially there's a traitor in the traitor's uh, mist. And uh, this, this character does, uh, he does it for his wife. Uh, he, he wants to save his wife and uh, because the Harkonnens has uh, kidnapped her. And essentially he goes in there and he's like, oh, you can join your wife. And then they kill him. Like that's one of the, probably the most campy moment or one of my, the most campy moments in the entire film. It's just such a, a, a you know, fairly conventional pulpy moment. So it's, it's that, that's, I, I really didn't enjoy how that was done. It was just so obvious. Well, yeah, I, I think the Harkonnens... Um, go, go ahead, Tom. I didn't mind that aspect, um, and it was that that exact scene is also in Lynch's version, so it's clear that that's what Herbert intended, and I thought it was handled quite well, to be honest. But I, I think to me that shows your reaction kind of shows the limits of the self seriousness. Is that I don't think the Harkonnen are meant mm. to be characters 
you know, they are more meant to be an embodiment of greed, right? And like the yes. Atreides are more meant to be uh, an embodiment of a kind of dignity, but dignity that is not perfect, right? Mm. And I think maybe, uh, so that moment played fine for me, but that's because I, I guess I have that context. Uh, and mm. I can see how, because Villeneuve take it, takes it quite uh, seriously, um, I mean, it's not that it's not taken seriously in the book, but I guess the approach is a bit different. And I can see how, yeah, that moment ca cannot work with Villeneuve's uh, style. No, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I didn't absolutely hate it. It's just one of those points that just, uh, like, that, that type of plotting didn't feel quite at home in a film that's made quite uh, quite this way. I guess with regards to, to the ending, I think... It, 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 he does choose a moment that's important to finish it, right? It's kind of Paul accepting his destiny in a sense with that fight and becoming a man and all that. But it's a, it's such a straightforward application of the hero's journey that I think will be subverted. And so maybe maybe that's part of my frustration with the film, right? It's because we end on a point where it's not being subverted. But I, that's also why I wait for part two, right? I think we're not going to stay on that mm. No, I think you're completely right, and that's uh, yeah. I think it, that was a really easy point to end it on, but it, it really felt like an anticlimax as well. Yeah. Um, there's so many other points or times that it could theoretically have ended, and the way they did it, it felt a little bit like it was a TV episode. Like it felt a little bit <laughs> like you know, this is a mid mid-season uh, TV episode. It's not an important climax. It's just like, uh, we are going to go here now. There's some slight anticipation of what they'll do. It, it, it's, that, that's probably, it, it just fizzled out a little bit. And that's fine. It's, it, it, it owns up to it. It calls itself part one. It's not like... Yeah. I just think that he could probably, he and his writers could probably have ended it on a slightly higher note where they felt like a film and its sequel or a prop or a you know normal duology rather than literally just part one and part two because with that that you can do this in every way it really is just find a reasonable point to shop it and then shop it there and it's you know not the high point not post climax it's it's just shop it at any point that kind of feels fitting and uh, yeah I, I agree with you that was a slight low point but then again, like you've been saying, we don't know what is going to happen. I mean, you read the book, uh, I've, sent, I've seen the previous adaptation, so we have a decent clue. But part two is coming. The tale will be complete. And I think that's probably going to be the more exciting uh, part here, because we will then get a, a complete work, if you will. I mean, this may be one of those few films, like, say, Tandy Belonging from the 20s, which, you know, people will add to the list as a unified whole, if part two really works. Just because the, the, the distinction is so vague, it is clearly set up as one work. So what are your hopes and your expectations of part two? Do you think it will live up to, uh, surpass, deliver on their expectations? Like, what, what, are your expect what are your thoughts on part two? I think it's got a great chance of exceeding my expectations, if I'm honest. Um, I think that with Dune, Villeneuve has established a excellent foundation for him to build upon his characters and, and his storyline that he's introduced to us. If we uh, compare it to Blade Runner 2049, for instance, I think one of the reasons why I love that so much is that it's in an established world 
and he was able to build on Scott's foundation to um, bring us something new. And now with June, he's established this foundation, so he's able to take us to other places in the second one without having to go through all the introduction, the character development, etc. And there's clearly going to be a lot of huge um, action set pieces, etc. from what I've seen in, in Lynch's version. So I've really got high expectations, and I think if anyone can meet them, it's probably Villeneuve. So I guess what I want slash expect, or at least this is definitely want <laughs> from part two, is for it to be very different uh, compared to part one. I mean, stylistically in line, but maybe tonally and, 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 and just what it's saying, uh, different. Uh, Tom talked about it's laying the foundations. Well, I kind of want him to blow up the foundations, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so that's, yeah, I just want something that is going in a, a different direction while still being coherent, of course. So I'm very curious to, to see it. Um, and yeah, reasonably excited about it. Yeah, I think uh, I'm close to Tom here. Yeah, I, I think I have fairly high expectations for it. I think part two will be a great film. I think I would be very shocked if Villeneuve could not deliver. He is, you know, a director at his prime here. I think he's established himself as a master director. I think he has the tools at hand. He has the freedom at hand to really go ahead and do this the way he wants to. So it would be a colossal surprise to me if he at the very least could not make a film that you know visually tonally uh, atmospherically in terms of craft etc couldn't live up to part one and then the question is you know will the plot allow him to will he make any changes to the plot um will the new characters the casting etc cause some additional issues there's certainly things that could lean into being slightly worse or slightly better. So I'm sharing some of Mathieu's feelings here. I would like it to, you know, blow the presumptions up a little bit here to be a little bit more dangerous. I'm not sure if it has the ability to do that, but I'm really excited to see what it's going to be. And at the very least, I think it will be a similarly great but somewhat straightforward epic uh, action sci-fi adventure and uh, like if that's the floor it it might be lower I I might be shocked but if that's the floor I'm very very happy regardless and uh, it's quite high on my list of anticipated films my one reservation is that the film's already got a release date so we're expecting to see it on the 20th of October 2023 which you know it's just under two years away but I don't know if that's going to put extra pressure on Villeneuve and his crew when really we want to give him all the time in the world to make sure he can continue the story in, in the best way possible. It might be enough time for him, but we'll, we'll have to wait to see. And it's also quite encouraging to hear that he's already mentioned some potential plans for a trilogy with the uh, third movie adapting Dune Messiah for the screen. So... You know, if all things go well, uh, we could have at least two more Dune movies coming our way. And that is just excellent news. Very exciting. I mean, you could have even more. Like, there are a lot of Dune books. <laughs> but I think with regards to release dates, um, I would say the past year and a half has proven that release dates are never set in stone. So I guess I'm not that worried about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point, actually. I agree with that. 
Yeah, I think he has his foundations down here too. He has most of his cast. So, I mean, there might be a lot of, like, since the second film was not greenlit, there might be a lot of set construction. We're probably going to be seeing, you know, the Fremen cities, etc. It's going to be really exciting to see how they're built. Um, we might also see other planets. So there might just be a lot of prepping and planning there going into it that could stall it. But I think that when you have a solid foundation like this, I don't think meeting that deadline is going to be that hard and if it is I'm sh- like let, let's hope they move it for him so uh, it, it's a good point Tom I'm going to be cautiously concerned about it but I, I think he'll deliver I, I think I would be very shocked if he could not deliver on this time frame and as I did not know there would, could be a trilogy that's even more exciting so we're really going to see Villeneuve doing one of the things he does best uh, possibly two times in a row now or three times in a row counting this and just continue to excel, hopefully, as a sci-fi director. And uh, while it would also be exciting to see him go in entirely different directions, I think that this kind of arc for him is going to be really exciting to see and might give him a really good boost to in what they can do later. If we're bringing in that comparison to Nolan once again, could this be his Dark Knight trilogy? Ooh, indeed, it really could be. And uh, with that optimistic final note there i think we had the perfect spot to end the episode i hope you all enjoyed listening to us because we've certainly enjoyed talking through dune thank you so much for listening and join us again soon you have been listening to talking images the official podcast of icmforum.com